What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. On the other line, friend of the pod, John Taylor. John. Good evening, sir. How are you doing? I am doing a-okay. How about yourself? Oh, I'm sweaty and gross. I didn't shower um, after I got done hooping before we started recording, so I'm pretty disgusting. I just ate, like, as we were talking about before we started recording, a Chipotle burrito, and um, I'm just very glad this is not a video pod, that this is not going to YouTube and not like the Joe Rogan experience where people just can watch me do this, because it's, uh, it's pretty gross right now. I'm looking at, like... Four different coffee mugs, three Lacroix bottles, um, and then my bowl of cereal from this morning. It's to say that I live like a mid twenties, I guess late twenties now. Twenty eight is late twenties. Something um, bachelor uh, would be the understatement of the year. You're really giving your uh, giving your listeners a lot of info here. Is it a lot? I mean, it's not like not like too much, but it's like they're really getting a complete picture of what this process is like. It's very behind the scenes right now. Yeah, um, I mean, I my studio is now in my office. Before I moved, it was in a different room, and now it's in it's all in one place. So I'm able to bounce back and forth. Um, I have the Braves on behind me on mute. I have my bookshelf to the left. I have uh, multiple framed photos in front of me. Um, yeah, I, I that I feel like that covers all my bases, right? Yeah, I think you got everything covered there. <laughs> Miller Lite bottle in the corner. Um, Jesus Christ, really got to work on this. So yeah, you've 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 very well painted the picture. You know, you've really given folks a, a good idea of what the Chase Thomas podcast experience is like. Top notch, folks. Um, I feel like I've seen you drink. Like cheap beer, like me, because I'm a huge Miller High Life Coors Light guy. Yeah, yeah, I'll drink High Life usually. That's my go-to. I, I like Shinerbach, and you know, I'll drink Bud Heavy. Like you know, I'm uh, I'm not I've never a had I'm not, Shinerbach. Shinerbach is great. It is a Texas beer. Mm. Um, it's, it's like it's like Lone Star. It's kind of similar okay. in that vein. It's Still kind haven't of good, had that solid, good solid cheap Texas beer. But um, do you like IPAs? Yeah, I, I like IPAs, but I'm not I'm not much into the world of like fancy. Just like Honestly, trying to keep up with that world seems exhausting and difficult. And most of those mm. beers are, they taste good. Like, I just, I think the other thing, too, is I, 
it sounds stupid, but like the cheaper beers are just just feel like way easier to drink in the sense that yes. like they're just they're just meant to be drank like cold and whenever you feel like it. And I, I just I kind of like that. So I agree. Like it's a big commitment to just dive into like a few IPAs. Yeah, especially when they're like you know um, I can get a highlight from my local supermarket for eight dollars or nine dollars or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, a four pack yeah. oh, I get a twelve IPA pack bottles for nine dollars. Yeah, and like you know, the nice IPAs are you know regularly fifteen to twenty bucks for like a four or a six pack. So, yeah, you know, that's it's not the other thing. thing. Nah, maybe 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 as I get older, maybe my thirties. But I also I just don't like, enjoy them as much. I think it, it can be hard too because they're always, if if not always, but they're usually, especially like the craft IPAs, are usually higher alcohol content, so you can really only yeah. have like two or three before you're kind of in a bit of a danger zone. And I've found, and I think this is just a thing about getting old, IPAs kind of tend to give me a headache if I have like mm. more than a couple. And it's not even like a, not even like a hangover thing. It's like in the process, like as I'm drinking them, I'm just like, oh, this is kind of making my head hurt a little. So see, I go um, the other way. I go stomach. Like my stomach is always like unsettled with like whenever I mix like the citrusy IPAs with whatever I've eaten that day, like it just never sits well. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, it's I heavy. can see that. Yeah, well, some of them are heavy, you know, and especially when when they get into like the super, like, you know, kind of adventurous, like, taste pro flavors. And it's like, this, it, it almost feels like the beer at a certain point starts to feel like homework. Yes. Like, you're, like, it's this whole idea. It's like, I'm supposed to be appreciating this beer and like the, the complicated floor. And it's like, no, man, sometimes I just want a beer, and sometimes if I just want a beer, it's a high life. Like, I can just drink that without... Thinking. Not sometimes, all the time. If I ever yeah. had a choice, if that's my options, I'm always taking the high life. I don't care. Judge me away, folks. You'll see me at a bar with Coors Light or Miller High Life, and that's going to stay. Staying on brand, man. I, I, I'm, sure if, I'm sure if you tweet about that enough, they'll actually send you high life, so... I mean, one of my life goals is to get Coors Light to be the presenting sponsor of this podcast. Hey, reach out to them. I'm sure... I'm sure they're happy to put their name on damn near anything. So, I mean, it's genuine. I think uh, Coors Light, I know you're listening. Um, you can tell that not even just me, John, sponsor Sports Illustrated. We could get Coors Light on the cover, a, a photo shoot with you and Coors Light. Or Miller Coors, Light. Uh, the Coors Light sponsor the Chase Thomas podcast challenge. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what we need to do. That's I think so. Um, this is a good segue into the Mets, who, <clears throat> if you are a Mets fan, you've been drinking lots of Coors Lights and other highlights to try and parse through whatever the hell they're doing right now. Brody, always uh, a step ahead of us media types. Um, as things are trickling in, what do you... Like, what are the Mets thinking right now? They traded for Stroman. Syndergaard might be out the door. It seems like Zach Wheeler's probably going to Houston. Um, what are they doing? Beats the hell out of me. And I and I mean that in the sense it's like, oh, oh okay, so I'm, I'm going to try my best to make sense out of this whole stupid thing that's going on. I think what you're seeing with the Mets is, and this is this is, was the case too, I thought, for the Cano-Edwin Diaz trade during the offseason. Where you see a general, it's, I think it's a combination of two things. One, a general manager who has never been a general manager before and thus is, you know, consciously trying to like, is both consciously trying to think outside the box and also is kind of a little removed from, I think, what, what constitutes like normal team stuff, you know? 
it, it's very much a kind of Silicon Valley disruptor type thing. Um, and I, I don't mean that as a compliment. You know, I just think that that's kind of the, the mindset. But I think a lot of this is a creativity. Um, and again, creativity in, in a totally neutral way. I don't mean creativity positively or negatively necessarily, but just creativity in terms of just trying different stuff. Born out of a reality, which is the Mets are cheap. Ownership will not spend the appropriate amount of money to build a contending team. And therefore, you need to try, or not need to, at least have to try, different alternatives and options to try to build a contending roster. And I think you saw that with Diaz and Cano, where the, simp- the simplest course of action for the Mets during the offseason, if they looked at that roster and like, you know, we need, uh, we need an, an infielder and we need a closer. Like, if, if Brody Van Wagenen had identified those two things as their two biggest needs, Craig Kimball and Manny Machado were right there. All they had to do was spend the money. Or if they decided to close in an outfielder, Bryce Harper and, and Kimball were right there. You know, it, there, are, there are many combinations. Instead, they end up with this convoluted scheme where they trade for Robinson Cano while having Seattle pick up some of the money, but also get Edwin Diaz, but also have to give up two prospects and also give up Jay Bruce, which granted at the time didn't really look like anything. And then it's, I mean, it hasn't really been anything anyway, but Bruce has kind of killed them or did kill them when he was on the Phillies and was healthy. You know, it, it very much is one of those like, you know, kind of like that, you know, the whole playing chess when everyone's playing checkers metaphor, except this feels like unnecessary, like putting chess pieces on a checkers board while the other guy is playing checkers. And just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, just, just play checkers. You know, it does not, it does not need to be this complicated. And I think the same thing is happening with Stroman especially connected to any possible Syndergaard trade of we trade for Marcus Stroman and trade away Noah Syndergaard. So that way we're still roughly at the same level of, you know, of ability and competition and skill, but we also get two prospects and we get a little bit cheap. It doesn't need to be this way. And that's I have an idea. Way. All right. What's your idea? What if they just kept Stroman and didn't trade Syndergaard or we right. right. And that's the thing, like a rotation of DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Wheeler, Steven, Matt. That's it's insane. pretty goddamn good. Like, even, even if Matt has not been very good, and he hasn't, even if Wheeler is, is injury-prone, and he is, and even if Syndergaard, you know, for whatever reason, and by whatever reason I mean because the Mets, cannot seem to match his potential because that team just can't seem to figure out how to make him consistently good, that's still pretty damn good. And though the Mets have plenty of other, like, they, and then the other part of that, the second part of this, don't just keep Syndergaard and Stroman, go get some more help, too. Yeah, go get You're go in get the a New good York market. You know, like, that's go the get thing is, yeah, go get some outfield help. Like it doesn't need to be this way, you know. And I think that's like Mets fans should have a reason to be celebrating right now because I don't think they had to give up all that much for Stroman. Like it's no, and that's, a and that's the thing. Like, Anthony Kay is their top pitching prospect, but neither he nor the other kid uh, Woods Richardson are part of their were made any global top one hundred or top one fifty list either before the season or during it. You know, this is pretty painless. And I mean, I mean, and I think what complicates you more is like, it didn't have to be like, you, you can already, it's like, oh, but we're sacrificing more pieces of a farm system where we already had to give up so much in the Cano Diaz trade. You didn't have to do that either. You could have just signed Craig Kimbrell. Yeah. Is Craig Kimbrell as young or cheap as Edwin Diaz? No. Does th- Should that matter to a team based in New York? Also no. And now right. you have to carry around Cano's contract for as long as you deem that viable when it's very clear he just doesn't have anything left anymore. And that, of course, was a huge open question, too, after his PED suspension, which was, and granted, like, we don't know 
with regard to Pete, to like, you know, when Cano was using, what he was using, how it affected him, any of that. But a safe bet for a 36-year-old infielder coming off a PD suspension is, this guy's probably not going to be as good as he used to be. You know, because yeah. that's a huge red flag. And to me, it's just like, again, you, 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 you got... You, you, essentially, you, you created a situation where you got worse players than you could have signed simply to save a little bit of money. And I think that's what the, this is the same situation, I think, with the whole Stroman Syndergaard stuff, which is, you know, getting, getting Stroman, good. Trading Syndergaard after getting Stroman, bad. You know, it, it, you don't need to do that. And I think the, the whole rationale for that is built out of this idea that Mets ownership, the Wilpons, will not, basically, will not run a budget or run a, a, run a payroll that is actually appropriate for what the Mets should be. And so Van Wagenen has to get kind of do all these crazy end arounds, which is further complicated by the fact that he's never done this before. And and I think that's really the part that complicates stuff is that you're, you're tasking a general manager who has never done any of this before, who has only interacted with baseball from the agent side, which is a totally different universe to try to figure out how to build a contending roster with like 75% of a pay of the payroll that contending roster should have. You know, and especially to, at a, and especially too, and I know the Mets made a lot of noise over the offseason about, you know, increasing, you know, hiring more analytics people, you know, increasing the staffing for their research and development um, staff. But the Mets are probably still at a disadvantage with that stuff compared to like the quote unquote smart teams in baseball. So you're not only asking Van Wagenen to do all this stuff, you're asking him to do it against front offices that are way better and way smarter. It's just, it's unfair to a certain degree, and it it just does not have to be this way. And I think that's just what keeps kind of. If I were a Mets fan, that's and I, and like you said, like they should be celebrating this kind of thing. Stroman for the price they paid is a good thing. You know, he's a much better pitcher than Jason Vargas. But I think even there, you see like with with the trade they they made with Vargas, where they sent him to Philly for functionally nothing. You know, a 26 year old catcher in Double A who doesn't who can't hit. You know, it might as well be it might as well have been nothing. That's a scenario where it's like you got you got Stroman ostensibly to get a better starter and improve your rotation depth. So you didn't have to rely on Jason Vargas every fifth day, but it's still probably better to keep Jason Vargas if the return is going to be that small. Yeah. Because now, and just now as who is your six guy utility guy yeah. when the other dudes go down? And now who's your sixth starter? Walker Lockett? You know, like a bunch of guys you've already tried who haven't worked. And like, yeah, sure, maybe maybe there is a roster issue in that if you have six starters with five spots, you know, one of them's got to go to the bullpen. Well, you've already done that with Fine. Steven Matt. Okay, yeah. like who who cares, you know? Or just or put Vargas in the bullpen. The Dodgers like, wouldn't be figured. Like they're do? not worried about the amount of starting pitching talent they have. Like they're not concerned. No, they're, they'll, they'll put Urias there. They'll do whatever. Like I don't think. Yeah, I mean they, they'll do whatever. And they also, I mean, they also benefit from the fact the Dodgers do that. Guys like Urias and Stripling have literally no control over the situation. You know, they're they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're making the major league minimum or whatever it is they happen to be making. Um, you know, they have, I believe, at least Urias's options remaining. I don't know. I don't remember if Stripling does or doesn't. So they, you know, they they are extremely fungible pieces in that regard in terms of what the Dodgers can do with them. But you're right. Like that, this is a thing that that these that like you know, the Dodgers are smart to do this because you always need starting pitching. Yes. Few, if any, teams can ever make it through the season, <clears throat> excuse me, without using at least like seven starters. You know, if not. Who more. did I see the other and day that's already used like a bajillion? I think the Orioles yeah, used um, like a thousand. 
But and especially um, a Mets team that came into the season with Syndergaard, who has injury concerns, Wheeler, who has injury concerns, Matt, who is a walking injury concern, and Vargas, who is just isn't good, you know, and is not someone you should be relying on. I, I think that's that's kind of the weird dichotomy of that of that Vargas trade, where it's like, well, he's not good, so you don't really want him around. But if that's all you're going to get for him, what's the point of trading him? But you also, might as why well, would the Phillies do that? What is the point for well, the Phillies? It, like, you need way more than that. The Phillies need, needed to do that because the Phillies, embarrassingly enough, do not have enough pitching depth otherwise. Like, they needed to get Vargas and guys like Drew, and a guy like, they also got Drew Smiley. He's actually pitching well tonight, weirdly enough. Um, because the Phillies, despite having roughly seven or 8,000 pitching prospects that they've, you know, acquired in some form or another over the last five years, have developed exactly zero of them, you know? Uh, Vince Velasquez, Zach Eflin, Nick Pavetta, um, Jake Thompson. I think it was Jake Thompson. I'm sure there, you know, there are other guys in there. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting. None of them have panned out, which is, I mean, also, I mean, granted, Aaron Nola is the one, you know, the one big exception, and he certainly counts for a lot. But it really is an indictment of the Phillies that they, you know, that they had to acquire a guy like Jason Vargas, and that he actually does count as an upgrade in the back of their rotation over a guy like Zach Eflin. You know, it, that should not be the case for a team that came into the season with very real World Series hopes. But, I mean, it, I mean, shit happens. Like, you know, I think the biggest problem for them was that Arietta got hurt and is still hurt and is clearly just, you know, barely functional at this moment. So, you know, there's there's only so much they can do. But, again, like, when you when you fail to develop guys like Velasquez and Eflin and Pavetta and, you know, everyone else into anything beyond, you know, like the back of the rotation material – you're going to get stuck in that situation where you have to go get a guy like Jason Vargas, who's also not really any good, but at the very least is there, you know, and there's, there's something to be said for having a guy who can just be there, um, you know, if, when guys get hurt. So, yeah, I mean, that, but to me, that's the weird thing about the Mets trading him is like the Mets also could use a guy who's just there because I don't really think they should be relying on a guy like Steven Matz or, you know, especially if they do plan on trading Wheeler. Although to my to, to me, it's like, and I, I, I don't know if you wanted to get too much into, into Wheeler and that whole situation, but seeing how little, not only how little they got back for Vargas, but how little the Blue Jays got for Stroman, who is a better pitcher, well, mm-hmm. has had a better season than Zach Wheeler has, although he does not have, Wheeler has better stuff when healthy. And with Wheeler being a rental, you're just probably not going to get enough back to warrant moving him if you're the Mets. Like, why not just keep him and try? And then you either a offer the qual- give him the qualifying offer after the season, and if he goes elsewhere, he gets you a draft pick, which great. Or you keep him either on that qualifying offer, which is a lot of money, but at the same time, you know, eighteen million dollars should not be a, a, a franchise breaking amount for the Mets. Or you sign him to an extension. You know, that's the kind of pitcher you can build on. You know, when he's healthy, Wheeler's a very good pitcher. There are way worse options for the middle and back of your rotation than Zach Wheeler. So. I mean, that, that to me, it just feels like there's no real point in trading him. And I think, I think we've already kind of, I mean, granted, there, we, we have very few trades to work with right now in terms of seeing how the market's kind of valuing players. But given how little Stroman got back, despite the fact he's having a good season as under team control for another year, I don't really see how it's worth the Mets' time to trade, to trade a guy like Wheeler. You know, maybe Syndergaard, if only because theoretically what he could bring back is way more than what Stroman could because he's better and younger and is cheaper and has an, an extra year beyond Stroman of team control. But Wheeler, I, I really doubt they're going to get anything worth anything for Zach Wheeler. Why did the Padres trade for Syndergaard? You say, why would they? 
yeah, why do they do this? Why do they give up? Um, I mean, who who's going to be in it? Is Framil Reyes going to be in it? Is Rinfro going to be in it? Like that's the kind. Of... I mean, the the most the most Mets trade possible is something like Framil Reyes and like Logan Allen. You know, uh, a you know a, a power first outfielder in a day and age when everyone has power, and a guy who might be a back of the rotation starter. You know that that feels extremely Mets to me. But or maybe or maybe a guy like Renfro who kind of has a similar profile as Reyes does. But I think that it makes it makes perfect sense to the Padres, and I agree with you know I think it was uh, Tim Britton at the Athletic wrote a piece where he, he kind of noted that the Padres are the Mets' best fit for a Syndergaard trade. Excuse me, because of the prospects they can offer. And I, and I and I think it makes a lot of sense for the Padres too, because if there's one thing they've kind of had trouble developing is pitching, aside from Chris Paddock so far. And they don't really have, you know, they made the, tra- they made the, they signed Hosmer, they signed Machado, they were able to kind of get those established kind of uh, corner infield pieces. Oh, Hosmer's having a, another kind of down year, but you know, those guys are still. Well, he's you know, only got uh, 19 years left on his deal, so it's fine. <laughs> but they haven't really been able to find that kind of eighth level starter in free agency, and I, I haven't looked at next year's free agent list recently enough to, to remember exactly who's on it, and I don't know who's coming in the next couple of years. But that's kind of a hard thing to find in free agency too, because by the time these pitchers reach the market, they've usually they've, they've thrown a lot of innings. They're going to cost a fair amount of money. You know, it's, it can be a tough situation. If you're the Padres, wouldn't it make more sense to take some of that big prospect stash you have, which they do? They have the best farm system in baseball, and just use some of that to get a guy who is in his prime, has some team control left for relatively cheap, has better stuff than almost anyone alive. Um, and thus is someone, you know, especially because, again, if you're a smart team and the Padres are a smart team, you can figure out how to make Noah Syndergaard a better pitcher. And I think, if anything, like, I don't think the Mets should trade Syndergaard, but I hope, I almost hope for Syndergaard's sake he does get traded to a smarter team, like a Houston or a Minnesota or San Diego, because they will actually be Atlanta. able to... <clears throat> yeah, Atlanta. the team will actually be able to figure out how to utilize him or not utilize him because I mean, there's no other way to utilize him, how to, how to make him into a, basically how to do to him what the Astros did to Garrett Cole, where they took a guy who had flashes of brilliance and made him this consistent, like number one starter. Um, but I think, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world for the Padres to trade for Syndergaard because you immediately have a front of the rotation piece who's under team control for a few more years, who isn't going to co- probably is not prospect wise going to cost you something where you're really going to regret it because they just have so many good prospects. Otherwise, this isn't like, this wouldn't be like Red Sox, maybe not the best option because they don't have a very good farm system, but this would be the equivalent of a team that has like three good prospects and just is, has to give them all up and now has no farm system is betting it all on Noah Syndergaard. The Padres are just betting a small chunk on Noah Syndergaard. And I think that'd be a smart bet for them to make. I just don't see it happening this, this summer because invariably it would be paying a premium to get him now and they don't need him now because that Padres team is not they're not a contender they had a terrible month of July they're completely out of the wild card race um it, I think it makes a lot more sense for them to do it in the offseason and given that Syndergaard is pitching today and even the Mets aren't stupid enough to start him if there are real trade discussions happening about him then I think this is probably a scenario where you're going to see the Mets and Padres talking during the offseason and maybe a trade happens then. because I do think still at the end of the day they are the best they're the best fit for the Mets and the Padres are the best fit for Syndergaard. So I I think that would make the most sense. If you're Minnesota, would you have given up Byron Buxton, the reported hall for Syndergaard for a real run with the Indians nipping at your tail and 
Um, just, I, I don't know. They're, the Twins are in a tough spot, and Buxton's obviously hitting a little bit better, 108 diversity plus, but he's maybe the best defensive outfielder in baseball, so it's like, I don't know. That's that's a tough that's one, tough. right? That's tough, and I, and, I see, and I saw a similar discussion happening when there were reports that the Red Sox were interested in Edwin Diaz, and I was like, would you give up Jackie Bradley Jr. for Edwin Diaz? And it's like, on the one hand, yeah, of course you could do that. Edwin Diaz is arguably the best closer in baseball. Jackie Bradley Jr. might be the best defensive uh, up there with Buxton is one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball, but he can't hit. You know, we we've got three three two and a half straight seasons worth of stats that show that that JBJ just is going to be at best a league average hitter, which is still great. Like it's you know it's still valuable given his defense. So on the one hand, that's an easy trade to make, but on the other, you look at what JBJ does for the Red Sox in center field, and it's like, uh, that's a tough hole you have to fill now. Because invariably, whoever you put there is not going to be as good as a defensive outfielder. And whichever of Andrew Benintendi or Mookie Betts you move over to play that position instead, or to play the now vacated position, their replacement's not going to be as good, because that's going to be J.D. Martinez, and he is a terrible outfielder. So, you know, it really does have an impact. Um, but I think with... I mean, I don't necessarily think that that was probably a realistic discussion just because it'd be a fascinating challenge trade. Um, but I, I don't think that was, I think if the twins, if you're the twins, the easier thing probably to do is just go get a good relief. You know, go get Will Smith, go get, you know, um, I guess Ken Giles is off the market. But, you know, go is get Ken like a... I shouldn't say off the market, but given he's dealing with elbow issues, I, I think it's probably a safe bet that the Blue Jays aren't going to trade him. I think his value probably right now is is pretty much is nuked at the moment. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing the nice thing for them is he's still got a year of team control left, so they can move him in the off season when he's fully healthy again. So um, but maybe maybe you know, the Twins could get a guy like Shane Green, who is certainly not like an elite reliever, but can help. And I think that might just be with. I think it just might just be what the Twins do, is to just focus on getting a reliever instead. Um, because I, I just don't, like... I, I don't know where I'd come down on a Bucks and Syndergaard thing. I just don't think it's an actual... I don't think it's an actual discussion point, because it's it's almost too crazy to consider, you know? There, it's a, it's a re, It would be a real challenge trait. I guess I just don't know where I come down on it, to be honest. I think if you're both fan bases, I think you could like be like, okay, this makes sense. I just think the scariest thing about the Syndergaard stuff is the fact that the Mets reportedly want MLB talent. Like they don't want anybody in the pipeline. They don't want it to restock their farm system. They want guys that they can replace Syndergaard with right now, which just would scare the shit out of me if I'm a Mets fan because yeah, I, because that's that's how you end up getting guys like Manny Margot, who are perfectly mm-hmm. fine baseball players, but who have already shown in their brief MLB careers that they are not, you know, that their, their ceilings are kind of limited in a certain regard. And it's like, you know, you, I would almost you rather, regard, you want like an Ian Anderson in return. You want something where you're like, okay, maybe we get our next Syndergaard in this. If you're going to do that, you get another potential young superstar in the deal. Like you don't do this for guys who can help you win now. And you're not even gonna make the playoffs this year. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't know. Again, I, I just, I feel it's like, just dumb. Like they're overthinking it. All they have to do, Will Ponds, if you're listening, keep all of them. You're in New York. Just keep them. The Will Ponds are definitely listening. Absolutely. God, what? I don't know. It's just very stupid because I feel like we. Though it's insane. The way we talk about the Mets is like how we would talk about like. I don't know who's more frustrated to talk about with their market situation and how they operate: the White Sox or the Mets. 
uh, I don't want to even get into the White Sox because their whole situation is just what what is the point of the White? I feel the same way about the Pirates. <laughs> oh my God! All right, you know they're they're just running in circles, mm-hmm. to no real effect, to no point at all. I, I, this this thing about the Pirates where they're trying to figure out if they want to trade Felipe Vasquez, and you know there's I saw I forget I forget who was it might have been the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, but uh, or it might have been the Athletic, uh, the Athletic Pittsburgh, but. One of the two had something where it's like the Pirates believe that with a core of Vasquez and Jamison Tyon and um, and Gregory Polanco and for some reason including that Trevor Williams they can actually be competitive. They just had too many injuries. She's like, no, you can't. You you are you are deluding yourselves that that is the case. You are not. That is not a, a playoff contender core. It simply isn't. I wish it. I wish it were because I really like Tyon. I really like Gregory Polanco, but they've both clearly demonstrated that they are injuries are just always going to be a problem for them. And so it's like at that point, if you're the pirates, like you need to stop, like the, the Chris Archer trade in a lot of senses was the worst damn thing they could have done. They first, like it just made no sense at the time. It is continues to make no sense. Now it is just a franchise killing move to some degree. I, I just, well, I hold don't on. Has me. Tyler Glass now been good? Yeah. I mean, he's hurt, <laughs> but he's been good. Now Austin Meadows has been good. And like Shane Baz has a chance to be very good, but like, I, franchise killing is too strong, but I, I just—it is a move. I do, it was a move I didn't get now. I don't certainly I didn't get then. I certainly don't get now. And I and I think if you're the Pirates, why not trade Felipe Vasquez? What like I saw an argument kind of to a similar degree about the Royals with, with Merrifield, where they don't want to give up Merrifield for anything other than. See, a that's the dumber one to me. Vasquez, I at least understand because at least you could make the case that the Pirates could be a playoff team, like a wild card team. Make sure you could at least get there. The Royals have no shot of being good in Whit Merrifield's. Right, and, and that pride. and that was the argument I saw, where it was like, if you are, if you are the Royals, you need to understand that Whit Merrifield is never going to play a playoff game for you. And if that, and if that's <laughs> it's the cold, case, but yes, you, and if that's the case, then you need to make moves with that in mind. You know, you you cannot. You and can't it's Whit operate. Merrifield. It's not like I, I just the, the way they look at him. It's just it doesn't match up to me. He's not that good. He's he's good. He's just not like, we can't move this guy. Good. Right. And and there's that element, too, of like, you know, you, you've got to get what you can for these guys while they are good if, you know, if you are not a realistic contender. And I generally I generally hate this idea that it's like, you know, you know, tank and be bad and like, you know, don't right. try. But I think there's a difference between actively going into a season not trying and recognizing in a season or recognizing ahead of time that you are not going, that you do not have a core of talent that's good enough, even if you were to go out and buy every good free agent in existence, you know, and therefore you need to move guys like, and I don't think get rid of everyone, but it, guys like Merrifield, who's like, I believe Merrifield is what, 30, 31, 32, something like that. He's yeah. already, he's already in his thirties or a like guy the like Royals Bat- are not going to be a playoff team until he's like Alex Gordon's age right now. Or, or move a guy like, or the Pirates move a guy like Vasquez because he's a closer, and that's the least valuable thing for for a rebuilding team as a closer. You know, and I get what you're saying. Like there, there is a, you know, there is a possibility the Pirates are in wild card contention next year. But to me, this idea that like, and I, I think you see a similar thing with the Diamondbacks. This idea that you that like your best case scenario is like 84 wins and a one game playoff in another team's stadium against their ace. I think they're banking I, on their young pieces, though. They have guys coming up in like a year or two, and they think they can continue chasing a wild card while their young guys come up. I think they're trying I think, to I think, 
to me, just the pirates just feel like they're just constantly on a carousel of just like a payroll. That's always between like 60 and $90 million. And that's all they care about. And that if they win with that, great. And if they don't win with that, well, so be it. Like, it doesn't really matter. And that to me is just the part that feels like we're just kind of going in circles. And I think the Royals, I think a lot of teams kind of fall into that category of just like they are just, the White Sox are there too, where it's just like, I mean, great. I think the White Sox actually were trying to build something there. I think they just, you know. They really want to be They, they, But I think the problem they ran into is one, they, they just, ran into a lot of injury issues with their pitching prospects, especially, yeah. and that just kind of hurt a lot. You know, Michael Kopech and certainly, you know, Giolito briefly, and, you know, but another part of that piece on Giolito? The, which one about his, like, it neuroplasticity was on It was at the Washington Post, because people forget yeah. that he was in the Adam Eaton trade, and... Yeah, uh, it was him and was it was him and Reynaldo Lopez and Dane Dunning, and Dunning's another guy where injuries have just kind of screwed them in that regard. Well, um, like what I loved about that piece is like this is something that's lost on trades and stuff like that. Where like Giolito talks about how like if I had stayed in Washington, it wouldn't have panned out because that team was on a different timeline. They just they didn't have time to experiment and work with me because that that rotation was loaded. They're trying to win a title now, and they couldn't have someone in their rotation who has like a seven point two five ERA. Like they just couldn't wait on me, and they couldn't wait on me to figure it out and be terrible. And the White Sox let me be terrible for a year and a half, and now I figured stuff out, and they trusted me, and now I'm good. But I think the problem you're in with the White Sox beyond the injuries is that they seemingly have no ability to discern major league talent. Every free agent they sign is just terrible. Like... And I know you say you know, they were in on Machado, but they weren't really in on Machado. The offer they made him was an embarrassment. Yeah. Well, then why know? did they sign his brother-in-law? Because they because they figured that would, was a path to getting Machado for cheaper. And that's the most frustrating mm. part. It's like you don't need to um, you don't need to be cheap. You have so much money. You have so much payroll space. You have all these players and Giolito and Yohan Moncada and eventually Luis Robert and Nick Madrigal and, and you know all the other prospects you have who are going to be cheap for a very long time. This, and this is what the Padres recognize and we're smart about. When you have that kind of prospect base, you can afford to dump $300 million on Manny Machado or 250, or however, I forget how much Osmer made, 150 million, whatever it is, on Eric Osmer. You can afford those things. You, you have to get those things right, you know. But I think that's where you kind of see the, the White Sox have fallen flat on their face is that, one, they've stuck to the cheap end of the market. And two, that cheap end of the market, you know, it's a lot harder to get good talent out of that end of the market unless you are like, unless you have a Yankees level development and coaching staff who can kind of turn guys like Gio Urshela and Luke Voigt into superstars or at least into functional pieces because they've seen something, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, uh, it reminds me what the Angels did this offseason when they signed Cahill and Matt Harvey and Cody Allen. And it's like, you're, you did this because they were available for cheap because these guys aren't good anymore. And when you play around in the cheap end of the market, you're going to get bad results more often than not, unless you know something and can fix something. Like and you're the Rangers not, where they're just like uh, magicians with Mike Miner. Right. And with Lance Mike Miner and Lynn. Lynn. Yeah. But like, and especially too, cause it's like, at least like Miner and Lynn at like real, like Harvey and Cahill, like an Allen, it just injury guy, like whatever. I mean, we're, we're kind of, this is a pretty substantial tangent we've gone on now. But <laughs> well, I can break up this tangent. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. So I got two alerts about the Braves while we've been recording. Okay. There are mixed opinions on uh, Atlanta's interest in Yasiel Puig. 
they have a right fielder uh, opening because uh, Nick Marquez broke his wrist, and they might just do like an Adam Duvall, Charlie Culberson, Matt Joyce t- situation out there. But Christian Posh, Pache, how do we pronounce it? Pashi, Pache. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I think it's Posh, but I'm not. I'm not 100. They also just traded for Chris Martin. They gave up Colby Allard. Okay, that's that's interesting. That is that is an interesting one. Martin's a really Martin. I think has a feel of like a Ryan Presley style. Um, relief acquisition where it, Presley obviously was, you know, kind of minor acquisition by the Astros, but was really good. It's been really good for them because they identified that he was, you know, an elite curveball spin guy and, you know, with some tweaks could become like a, a frontline setup guy. I think Martin is a similar kind of under the radar um, bullpen addition for a team that definitely could use it. Um, yeah. I would rather have another starter, but this is, this Allard is, fine, is I guess. Allard was was he I, I don't recall all the details about him but he was a pretty highly touted prospect at one point right yeah yes 100 percent. yeah and i Lefty. feel like was he a guy where injuries just kind of messed him up yeah but this is also like one of those things where now that he's gone people won't just like they're gonna there's gonna be a lot of revisionist history here where it's like you gave up colby allard who's this one of these prize guys who we can't trade a year ago for any top line talent and then he's moved for a reliever in chris martin and my whole point what i've been arguing with just fans and analysts about this over the last year is that like the Braves hoarding all these pitching prospects is just silly because most of these guys are not going to work out. Like I just look at the, the, the Red Sox model and like you pick and choose, like the bigger thing to do is be have amazing scouts that can discern which one is the most likely to break out. And it seems like Ian Anderson is the most likely dude to be a star, but like no one saw this coming from Mike Soroka. No one saw this really coming from Max Fried after the last couple of years. Like, it just, it's so hard. It's so volatile that like, I, if you have an opportunity at a superstar, you move a couple of these guys. The Dodgers do it all the time. Like teams, you can, if you have a good system, you have a good scouting department, you know how to, um, you have an eye for talent. Kind of like you said, like a, the exact opposite of the Phillies and the White Sox and teams like that in recent years, like you'll be able to replenish that pipeline, but just hoarding these dudes. And if you just see first round pick, you just like immediately go, can't move them. Well, you have 19 arms in the in the prospect pool. They're not all starting. And most of these guys are not going to work out. And you see guys like Sean Newcomb, who just, he hasn't worked out. And he was the centerpiece in the Anderson-Simmons trade. And Bryce Wilson, sure, maybe. Kyle Wright, uh, I don't know. But like all these guys, it's like once they get to the main roster, it's just, I don't know how to explain it. You just, when they're not there and they're just in double A, they're a lot more appealing. And you're like, oh, we have to keep these guys. And then you see them once on the main roster. And you're like, oh that's that's actually what they are because being a major league pitcher is extremely difficult being a starter is extremely difficult look at austin riley what he was doing at the beginning and now he's just lost and might get sent down like i you have to have a balance you can't just hoard all of these guys because the majority of them are not going to pan out that's how it works so you have to have a good yeah, department to know who will work and then trade the rest and that's the thing like prospects aren't just for building a cheap roster that is talented they're also for using there are also pieces you use to go get the pieces you're missing. You know, and like you said, like the Braves who have roughly 10 million pitching prospects, you know, but none of those guys are close to the majors and they need, they need a, a major league caliber starting pitcher right now. You know, they're, they're going to win that division with ease. They're a guaranteed playoff team. They are a, I'd say probably a dark horse, a world series contender, you know, if things go right. 
I mean, if the Dodgers' starting rotation falls off a cliff or something. Sure. Yeah, like, if, if all the Dodgers die. But, like... Yes. <laughs> I, I think, but like you said, there's an element of, like, you can't keep all of these guys. You have to move some of them. And, you know, if you're if you're a smart team with a good scouting department, with a good player development department, with a good coaching staff, you can figure out which guys, you know, are really, truly untouchable, quote-unquote, and which guys kind of make more it, <clears throat> make more sense to move, you know, as a as a guy to bring you back something you need. And I think that's, that's me as like, you know, that, if you that's like where that's you trust GM, the front office and I feel like that's GM one Oh one, but we're in a yes. place now, I think with baseball, with the way things are, with the way valuations work um, among all the front offices where they're just, there's this almost like paralyzing new orthodoxy of like, no, you you must keep your prospects. You must keep your cheap players. Like it's never worth it to trade prospects because they're always going to be more cost effective like who like at a certain point that ha- that cannot be the the, defi- the like the the defining or the the guiding principle at a certain point like the, the goal is to win the goal is to win a world series not be the most like not get the most dollars per or not get the most wins above replacement per dollar spent and i feel like teams are leaned way too far in that direction because every team is now run by hedge fund analysts like and that and that is the only way they think, you know. It's it's not in terms of like the actual game that's happening on the field. It's who is the most cost effective. You know, these guys are the most valuable assets in the game. Therefore, they are. You know, we should not move them. It's weird because with if every front office thinks the same, and like I'd say like ninety percent of them all have the same line of thinking, and I, I think this is why you're seeing a, a trade deadline where nothing is happening. Because they are all basically just playing chicken with each other. They are all just in a position where it's like we have the same valuations on everyone. We don't want to give up our prospects. We don't want to give up our young players. Therefore, we're never going to move anything. We're just not. No one is going to get better because getting better comes at a cost, and come, and getting better comes with risk. You know, because there is a risk that, you know, that the move doesn't work out, and that happens. But it seems like teams are more and more just disinclined toward doing risky stuff. And they think they can like, pseudo contend for like 15 years. That's what the pirates are doing. They're just going to pseudo contend and try and talk their fan base into like, oh, we can might we may go on a run or something. But it's just yeah, just just it, that that cold hard calculation of like, you know, it is better to have a team with a bunch of young guys who don't cost much, where the ceiling is like 84 wins, than to go for it and try to build a team, you know, that can win it all. And we're not suggesting gutting your team like Billy King and just destroying no. everything and then like destroying your future for 10 years, like Ruben Amaro or something. That's not what we're suggesting. No. We're suggesting like, like every now and then you have to do this. You have to go and the, put your chips in. And honestly, the problem with Ruben Amaro and those Phillies weren't so much they went all in because when they went all in, they built a fucking super team. Yeah, they won, a, know, they just, won a World Series. So it, it they, won, they won a World Series and they won like three straight division titles. And, you know, it's just, again, it's, it's that whole Billy Bean, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Like, the postseason is is just a it's a tough thing it's a it's nothing but short series sometimes things go your way sometimes things don't i'm not going to fault ruben amaro for 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 taking the chance to make a philly super team the problem Speaking i think of, ran by into the way, was oh go ahead keep going so that's it. the problem i think the phillies ran into was that they didn't know when it was over and they held on too long to those guys and they didn't have a there was no plan b when things didn't work out when that last kind of playoff team just lost to the Giants in uh, 2012, I think it was, because that, that was the last year they made the playoffs before 
right? I, I, I'm admittedly not a Philly fan. I'm trying to think because they won the title there, there, in whatever year it was where whatever year it was where Ryan Howard blew out his Achilles in the postseason and they lost to the Giants. I think that was 2012 because I mm. remember watching that last game of that NLCS and Sergio Romo closed it out. Um, or, or sorry, not Romo, Brian Wilson. So God, Brian Wilson. I, I know, right? So, you know, I, I think at that point, I don't, I don't think Amaro and the Phillies front office knew what to do, and it certainly wasn't helped by the fact that that Phillies front office was extremely analytics averse. Um, that I think was a, that was a bigger issue than going for it because when they went for it, they built a rotation that had Roy Halladay and Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels. That's objectively a good thing, you know. That that every team should be attempting something like that. Um, but yeah, I, that I, what were you going to say as I was yelling about the Phillies for no real reason? Oh, the division titles, the three straight, it just reminded me that like I stumbled onto the fact that the Dodgers have won the NL West like seven years in a row now. I think it's six I, years. Like, I, year I forgotten they did seven. that even when the Giants won the World Series. Like I just, I, I just yeah, forgot every, this team just keeps winning the division. Yeah, the 2014 Giants are a wild card team because they beat. Uh, they beat the Reds in the wild card game, then they beat the Nationals in the division series, and then they beat the the Cardinals in the in the championship series. It's weird. Um, they're yeah. sneaking up. They're halfway there to the Braves record. How many division division titles did the Braves win in a row in, in the nineties? Uh, Ninety one to two thousand five. They won every division title in the nineteen nineties, aside from the ninety four season. Yeah, uh, yes. Wow, I I had act, I knew it was a long streak. I did not know it had been literally a decade. Yes, yeah, I'm yes, yeah, I'm pretty sure my math's right because uh, that's fourteen, right? To nineteen ninety one to two thousand five, right? Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, no, I'm not I'm not questioning the math. I was just kind of blown away that it was like for that long, you know. Yeah, they, they spent. This those... is like the dumbest thing we talk about with the Braves. Where I get in this, like I I wrote about this before the season started, where I was like. The like the one forgotten thing about the Braves is like they went after Smoltz, they tra- they went after Maddox, they went after David Justice, they went after these dudes. They had a top five payroll most of the nineties. Like yeah. they were they spent a shit ton every single year. And this Braves front office right now, I think they're smart. I think Alex Anthopoulos is a good GM. I think they're they're fine. But this this I just don't think this ownership group is going to spend enough for them to win like fourteen straight division titles. I don't think that they're going to just keep running through everything and just be the sustainable super team for years and years. I just, I don't think you can do that when you're going to be middle of the road payroll rise. Like you just don't win the division that many times when you have that limited payroll. It just, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And, and kind of the, again, the, the issue that all these teams have kind of convinced themselves, there's only one way to compete and one way to build a team. And, you know, if you win with that roster, great. And if you don't win with that roster, well, at least you didn't spend a whole lot. You know, there are very few teams and front offices and especially ownership groups that are willing to put the money out there to do more, you know. Um, bad for our country, but this is tremendous content. Which is why, and, and I know it's, it's a little weird that, you know, we've seen the Reds connected to Trevor Bauer in, in trade. Oh, I love that. I love that. that and I, I really liked what the Reds did in the offseason, even though it hasn't worked. I mean, it like, worked. Sonny Gray worked, I think. And Alex Wood, I mean, they, they certainly, you know, they, they, the, they had the bad luck that Alex Wood wasn't healthy. Uh, I mean, their piece that obviously didn't work. The Matt Kemp part of that um, part of that trade just didn't work at all. And Scooter Scooter Jeanette getting hurt was a really big loss. But I I like that they went for it, and I like that in in getting Bauer that would be you know certainly not really going to do much for them in 2019. But it's about getting better for next year if they can. And I 
I think there are just too many teams that are just or not enough teams are willing to do that. And certainly it probably is a factor that the Reds owner, Bob Castellini is like, you know, he's, he's older. So, you know, it's, it's not quite a Mike Illich situation where it's like, I need to buy a title before I die, but pretty dark. It is. And the saddest part is that Illich never even got it, um, no. which is a bummer. But again, like we don't see too many Mike Illich kind of old school, George Steinbrenner types who are just like, just pay whatever and get it done because I want to, I want a championship, you know, I don't care the cost. And then that's not to say like those guys didn't, you know, have like some payroll concerns. But it feels like every ownership group now basically says, I want a good return on investment. And that's just Hell ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> and that's just ridiculous. And it's ridiculous to ask fans to root for a return, a billionaire's return on investment. Like every Pirates fan, you know, being put in the situation where the thing that matters most is Bob Nutting's bottom line, that's ridiculous. And it, it's, it's sad that, that that franchise is just kind of beholden to the fact that he does not want to spend money. And the same thing with the Rays and the same thing with, you know, the White Sox and the same thing with, you know, half the teams in baseball who were just running a payroll. Same thing with the Blue Jays. Like, it, it's just, it's a bummer. It's, how do, how do our podcasts always turn into this where I just start getting mad and sad about the economics of baseball? Because I'm just great at my job, John. That's just great. It's, how does this always the rant I get on? I don't know. Are you upset about it? No, but I feel like there should just be bingo at this point every time I come onto the podcast just to be like, I wonder how know. people think about it. Like, did they just, I wonder if they have the same thought where like, God damn, Chase is like just going to ruin John's night again. He's going there. He's letting him go. I, I just imagine they're like, wait, didn't I already hear this episode? Is this a best <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, this is baseball. Like this is, I mean, they, they're doing this. They're like, we have to look at the trade deadline through the scope of how these gms think and how these owners think like this is part of it you it would be dishonest not to mention this kind of stuff when we're talking about why every team is playing chicken why madison bumgarner is not going to get moved why this that and the other like this is all paramount to what's going on right now you just can't stick your head in the sand like you have to acknowledge that this is just part of it and when it changes we won't talk about it as much i think it would just i i think it would just be dishonest yeah and it's it's just I guess it's just sad that that has to be a talking point because I'd much rather talk about the game on the field than about you know the well, weird Julio Tehran. Um, let me give you this to, to okay. Let me mood. rephrase that. I don't want to talk about Julio Tehran. <laughs> I, I'll talk about well, anything that on. is not Julio Tehran. I'll talk about the fact that Travis Darno is suddenly the best hitter in baseball. I mean, we all saw that coming, but. Um, my grandfather texted me. This is the best Tehran has looked in three years or more to me. So Tehran's back. No, we're not. We're not doing this. I'm not <laughs> falling for that silliness. Oh, uh, oh! I, I don't have the heart to tell him. This is not. It's it's not going to last. Um, what would you do if you're the Sox? Like, um, I probably would have signed Craig Kimbrell this offseason, but. I, I also would have signed Craig Kimbrell, and then they wouldn't be in the situation they are now, where their bullpen is just kind of a. a a Russian roulette game every night. But they don't I really, they have to do, it's so weird because they can't sell Dombrowski's out after like next year, right? Like he's, he's older. I, he's no, I, think, I think his, I think his contract's been extended, but regardless, you're right. They, I don't think they can sell. They don't really have anything to sell in the first place. Yeah. The only expiring contract they have is Rick Porcello and nobody in their right mind is going to pay for Rick Porcello or trade for, sorry. But um, besides, we, would you we need J.D. Martinez for a big call. So we can sign with the Mets as the most Mets signing of all time. Yeah. But 
they they need to add relief help, and I would argue they need to add some rotation help too. I just don't, don't see how they're going to get that because their farm system simply doesn't have enough peace. Unless you want, and this is something the Reds, the thing the Red Sox have in spades in their farm system is kind of prospects under the age of 20 who are really far away from the majors, like kids in Dominican Summer League and the Gulf Coast League, like recent draft picks, where it's like, you know, you, where you're buying on promise. And promise it's going to take a while to come to fruition. And I don't think there are too many teams left who want something like that, unless it's for, like, the, the trade they made for Andrew Cashner is a good example, where it's like, I think that's the only real time you're going to see pieces like that, because they gave up two Dominican teenagers, basically, for that. And I think that's the only time you're going to see kind of prospects like that get traded is for a guy like Kashner, who is a major leaguer who theoretically can help and fills a roster hole, but is just not very good. And I think I saw a report that they were interested in, in the Diamondbacks, Andrew Chafin, who is probably the best lefty specialist in baseball. But another guy where it's like, if you're going to trade for him, you're probably only giving up like a, a couple Dominican teenagers because a piece like a, a major league piece like that, is never going to return a major league. What a sentence prospect. on a sports podcast. You're right? only giving up a couple Dominican teenagers. I don't know how to it's, take this sentence. It's weird. I know it's a weird phrasing, but I, I, I think reality is like those prospects who are super far from the majors who are lottery tickets. I think you're only going to see them traded at this point for guys who are kind of marginal upgrades slash roster kind of, they're, they're not quite like, you know, they're not quite like replacement level. They're guys like Chafin or Cashner who can help but who are not, you know, they're not stars. They're nothing close to stars. They're just, they just happen to be average to good major league players. Um, and it, obviously some of that depends on the contract status too, but that's really all Boston can offer, you know, because otherwise you're talking about good, but flawed prospects like Darwin's and Hernandez or Bobby Dalbeck or, you know, Brian Matta, or maybe someone like Michael Chavis or Jaron Duran. Like, you know, there's, it's a pretty limited, they certainly don't have like any big top 100 guys. You know, I think, you know, certainly all the injuries for Jason Groom kind of screwed them in that regard. But I think that that's what it would kind of end up being. It's like, if you are, if you want to make a trade with the Red Sox, that's all you've really got to pick from. And so they're not obviously going to be in the running for a guy like, I know I saw the reports. They were like interested in Edwin Diaz. They don't have the pieces for Edwin Diaz. You know, that's just not a thing that they're going to be able to do. You know, they don't have the pieces for like a Madison Bumgarner, for a Noah Syndergaard, for a, um, for a Will Smith, really for anything other than kind of second tier relievers. So if anything, you know, just get as many, I guess, get as many of those guys as you can and hope to catch lightning in a bottle, I suppose. I think if Zach Wheeler were healthy, that would have been a, a good target for them. I think, I mean, he is healthy, but I'm just not sure if a team, if any team is really kind of, I mean, maybe, and, but maybe there is room for that. Cause I mean, again, given how little Marcus Stroman costs, relatively speaking, you know, maybe a guy like Wheeler is affordable for a guy like the Red Sox, but I also have to feel like even in that scenario, there's probably going to be another team like, you know, Milwaukee or maybe the Yankees who can offer more for that player. Or because the again, the Cubs. Or the Cubs. Like, you know, there, like, there are a lot are of they teams, doing? There are a lot of teams out there that could use some rotation help and for whom Zach Wheeler would make a lot of sense. Yeah. So the Cubs you know, just need everything that, in their pitching. Like they like we the Braves fans get nervous about Luke Jackson and friends, but like the Cubs bullpen and like Kimbrell. But didn't we all see this coming? We just forgot to not read the numbers and like the beyond the box score pieces and everybody writing about like relievers who just took a couple months off because they weren't signed well, fair I mean, worse I, than the starters I, that don't have that time like, off. I I think 
you know, and this is kind of a, uh, it's a weird kind of game to play where it's like on the one hand, it's like sign Craig Campbell, you idiots. But on the other hand, like you said, like you have to factor in that there's going to be a lot of rust to shake off, you know, that these guys, you know, didn't get a full spring train or didn't get a normal spring training, haven't played all season. And so, you know, in, in that scenario of like, uh, of like getting Kimberly, like, yeah, you have to factor in that there was going to be an adjustment period. I think, you know, which, which, and which then just makes argument. then you should have all the more reason to have signed him in the off season instead of playing the stupid waiting game of chicken, you know, to try to save yourself some money. Well, now, now what you, all you've done is spent money anyway for not as good a season. Like, you know, what, what was the point in the end of the day? You know, what did this, what did this, what did this accomplish? It's, you know, it's that, um, it's that whole, uh, uh, no country for old men situation where it's like, you know, if the rule that, if, if the rule brought you here, you know, to this point of what use was the rule, like, you know, if, if this is where you ended up because of your intransigence, what was the point? You know, you've just screwed yourself. That That's really where it just kind of ends up. I think we have to wrap up here with that line. You just screwed yourself with a no country for old men reference. Yeah, I think I think it's a I think it's a viable reference. I read something over the past week that the Royals could win the MLB trade deadline, and I almost just lost my mind. It By doing like, what? They have nothing to offer. Trading Whit Merrifield and Deakman and uh, Ian Kennedy. What, what do they win? Being worse? I, like I, what is? The I point guess of like that? they think that they can get a, the best haul, but it's like no. Also, I would have loved Ian Kennedy on the brace. Like I think he, it's it's fun that he's a closer now and i've always been like an ian kennedy stand from him and tyler clippard back in the day phil hughes jabba love those young yankee pitchers the 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 andrew brackman humberto sanchez like Mm. yankees pitching prospects of yore yeah i remember i remember the the, you know the hughes kennedy jabba uh i guess pick a fourth pitcher i guess it would have been brackman you know that was supposed to be the like rotation of the future in new york and it just it never panned out no, because sometimes pitchers in the pipeline don't pan out. Um, pitchers break. Braves fans. It, that's right. Pitchers break. The Braves, Braves fans have already seen that with, with Mike Miner and Brandon Beachy. And oh, God. Brandon Beachy. I forgot about him. Who was Chris the, who Medlin? Was Chris Medlin. That's the other guy. It's like Braves fans have already seen that happen. Like they already should be aware or know that it's like, you know, these <laughs> pitching prospects do not always work out and you should probably have a backup plan you know, just in case, or make a point of being like, we identify the two or three guys we know we want to keep, and then everyone else is like, is available for the right player, you know? Do you know what I feel really good about? Soroka, Keichel, and like, Zach Grinke, and in the playoffs. This yeah, the Braves should, the Braves should totally go get Zach Grinke. They can totally afford Zach Grinke. They 100% should do Dude, that. Dude, I would buy, like, I don't know if you know how much I've, I, I wrote the Zach Grinke for Jeff Rancor trade piece when i was a senior in high school Ooh. and it never happened and i still just i don't know i, I i've just always loved zach grinky i've identified with his personality type since he was since i was in high school like i've just ace pitcher who's also just a gigantic weirdo i i just yeah. i i love zach grinky and he's also still a very good pitcher and he would be another guy you'd want in your playoff rotation he's under contract for a couple more years and um, I don't know. I mean, I wrote about Mike Leake being like the guy. Like, I, I guess I should say that, like, in a perfect world, they go get Elias, Santana, and Leak from Jerry Depoto. 
That's what I would do. I, I would just keep calling them and asking for those three and what it would take. Because I don't think it would take that yeah. much to get those three. I think you get a bullpen good. arm that I like. He's in his 30s. Domingo Santana kind of having a little bit of power. I like him in right for a couple months and all that kind of stuff because I think he's uh, a free agent after this year. And then Mike Leake is serviceable, and I would trust him in playoff games. He's he's fine. I, I think he's another long reliever type that they could throw in there, but they just need arms that they can count on right now. Why Fulton Nevich figures shit out. Tehran does whatever he does, and Max Reed tries to get healthy, but... Um, I don't know. The Mariners made the most sense to me. Like the realistic targets. Like I would love Green Keep, but I don't think it's realistic. I think the yeah, parts is more realistic. Perfectly, I think that's a perfectly fine trade for the for both sides. I mean, not, well, not necessarily for both sides because we don't know. You know, this is a theoretical where you have no idea what the Braves give up. But I think that makes sense for the Braves. You know, it, it's uh, you know, I, I, ideally they would make a, a go for a slightly better you know tier of player than those three because you know Elias is a pretty fungible relief arm and Santana's a butcher of a defender and leak is extremely homer prone and just kind of blah you know ideally they go a little higher than that but you know if, if you want kind of a you know a serviceable group of players to help kind of paper over some roster holes sure you could do a lot worse yeah all right john well anything we need to read from you this week on si.com slash mlb um Obviously, we'll do all. We'll have all our trade deadline stuff tomorrow. You know, recapping or you know, live blogging, recapping some stuff on Thursday, kind of resetting the league. And then I got some on Charlie Morton scheduled to come out on Friday, so that should be fun. Charlie Morton's a very, very cool, very thoughtful guy. So you know, it's a good Charlie Morton content if that's if that's what the folks want. Oh, that's what we all want at all times. Charlie Morton, hey, you know, good story. Remade everything and all that. Isn't he retiring at the end of the year? Is that he is or or I think it's whenever this contract is up, I think it was a two year contract. So after next year, I think he said oh, he's okay. done. So you don't see that very often where they're just like, no, you don't, no, this but, is I mean, it. He's, but he's 36 and he's, you know, had a long career and he has, I think three or four kids. And he said, you know, I, I want to go basically be a dad. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've had long enough a baseball life. So, and, and I, which is cool. And it's like, you know, as a guy who made a huge comeback and was, you know, had arguably one of the greatest World Series appearances ever. So, you know, he's, he's got that going for him, which is nice. Yeah. All right, John Taylor, always a pleasure. I apologize for the headaches and uh, the migraine that will ensue after you parsing through another uh, frustrating conversation about the, the state of baseball and uh, finance GMs. So I apologize. Well, it's, that's quite all right. I'll, uh, I'll, just, I'll be sure to send you the doctor's bill when it comes through. I thought you were about to say, it's good. I got like a 12-pack of Miller High Life in the fridge, so it, it'll be okay. I, I do not. I have some seltzer, though. Seltzer. Is okay. So do I. See? We're on the same page. Yeah. All right. John, thank you so much. Talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Thanks, dude. All right. We're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast now I am joined by Mike Carmen of the Journal and Courier. Mike, good evening. How are you doing? Uh, great. How are you? I'm good, man. Um, I, you know, it's funny when I was, I mean, I, a, I'm a psycho because I just am very interested in Purdue football and just what's going on right now and the Jeff Braun renaissance and keeping him away from Louisville and all this different stuff that I want to ask you about. But um, I saw in your bio tropical shirts are kind of your thing um 
is this real? Do you wear tropical shirts all the time? Because your Avi is you in a tropical shirt. Uh, well, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, little, I'm, I'm old school. Don't you don't wear white before Memorial Day, and you don't wear white after Labor Day. I just, I just, uh, I use uh, the tropical shirts from uh, the, I guess it would be the old school calendar of summer, which was mm. Memorial Day to Labor Day. Interesting. Okay. Um, that I, I just, I hadn't seen that before. Um, so Purdue, I, I have a couple of questions first, maybe this is a little too loaded, but when I think about different coaches like PJ Fleck coming into Minnesota and what he's doing and like how once it happens, it seems a lot easier than it actually is for coaches to come in and fix programs that have just been bad for years. And it was like nine wins over four years or something like that when Bromick come in and, he turned it around immediately and they just had their first top 25 recruiting class in forever. Like I, I'm intrigued to know from you, like how in your opinion has Jeff Brom fixed Purdue so quickly? Well, um, it's it's an excellent question. One that probably requires some depth and, uh, (laughs) no really, uh, clear answer or short answer to that. Um, you know, I, I would just start with, um, you know, when he came in after the 2016 season and then obviously going into 2017, um, it's just more of, uh, you know, just believing in the guys that were there, even though they had only won nine games in, in, in four years and they were uh, used to losing, uh, you know, things went bad, their head went down. Uh, so, I mean, the first thing he did was like, give him, give him a belief, but then what really maybe pushed them in the right direction was, uh, the first game of the 2017 season when they went to Indianapolis and played Louisville, which is Jeff Brom's alma mater and hometown. Uh, ironic that his first game as a Purdue coach would be against Louisville, uh, in Indianapolis, but, uh, they almost beat Louisville. Uh, they lost a touchdown. But, and he said, um, I can't remember if he said it after the game or the next week, but when the team came into the locker room at halftime, either they were up uh, by a handful of points or were, were down just by a handful of points, he said you thought the team had won the Super Bowl because mm. they were just that excited to be in a game against, at the time, a highly ranked team in Louisville who had um, – you know, Heisman Trophy guy in Lamar Jackson. And and from there, their confidence just kind of grew uh, throughout throughout that season. But he, he started to instill that, and his coaching staff started to instill that when they first got there and then in spring ball. They recognized they had some talent on defense, some individual talent on defense, and they played to, to its strengths. And uh, things just kind of fell into place. And, you know, Jeff Brown's in a uh, a very good offensive coach and he can recognize mismatches and put guys in the right spot and recognize where the defense is weak and just attack that area. So again, you have a combination of things that, that happened and maybe as we were covering the program before Jeff Brown got here and thinking they just don't have any good players. That was not the case. They had some good individual players it just never worked under the system that they were playing. And Jeff Brown comes in 
and his coaching staff, which is a veteran coaching staff, um, especially on the defensive side with side with Nick Holt, who was at USC and Washington and some other premier places, um, you know, they know what they're doing. And, you know, that first season just kind of snowballed a little bit. You know, they, they, they were, they finished six and six or they finished seven and six, excuse me, but, uh, they, they kind of sent a message that, Hey, you know, things can get done here at Purdue. And it just, the, the excitement of, having the program back to a level where it's competitive has, has just really carried through the last, uh, last season and heading into this year, you know, they're going to start camp coming up Thursday. So again, that's probably a long answer to a, a complicated question that has many moving parts to it. Uh, and since then they've recruited very well. Um, they just made the kids kind of believe that believe in themselves and believe in what Jeff Brahman and staff are doing. And they, and they bought in. How do they get better in 2019? How do they build off last season? What's the avenue? What's the path? Well, uh, they only have eight seniors. Um, and all, I, all eight will probably play a prominent role. Um, they, they get better if their freshmen can make an impact immediately. Um, and then you, you have the Rondell Moore factor. You know, what does he do for an encore after the kind of year he had? Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, you've got a lot of, a lot of things that have to go right. They're going to be, they're going to be young. Um, they're going to have guys that haven't played, but the guys that haven't played are probably more talented than the guys that have played in the last couple of years, if that makes any sense. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's just yeah. them getting to, to know what to do, when to do it and doing it on a consistent basis. Now, you know, yeah, remember they lost their bowl game by a zillion points to Auburn. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they lost to Minnesota by a half a zillion points, you know, in November. Yeah. Um, so they're not really, if you you know, if you look at last season as a as a momentum type of thing, they really don't have that coming into this year. Yeah. Um, I, I I thought the bowl. I think it's really just like the Ohio State thing, right? Well, they, that's a wave that keep they keep riding for yeah. in a variety of areas. Uh, most of them have to do with non-football things, just because um, it, it, it has touched people in so many areas across the university and across the world that they keep getting reminded of what happened against Ohio State that mm-hmm. that night. But um, it, it's going to be a young team. But you're in year three, so you need to you need to show a, some signs. Jeff got a nice big fat contract, which he should have got after um, you know the Louisville situation. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's on my list. Why are are you surprised that they were able to give him that? That they were able to keep uh, Louisville away and they they ponied up for him? Um, I wasn't surprised he stayed because believe it okay. or not, produce produce a better football situation than Louisville is right now. Doesn't mean it'll always be that way. I was gonna say it's really just because of Brom, though. I think if he went to Louisville, it'd immediately become the better situation, right? Well, um, I, I, I can't say what he would inherit at Louisville was the same yeah. that he would have inherited at Purdue. That he inherited at Purdue. Um, I mean, if he, if anybody thinks there's any pressure on Jeff Brom at Purdue, what if he went to Louisville? How much pressure yeah. would there be on Louisville? Uh, I think at the moment, you know, Purdue's a better football job. It doesn't mean it'll always be that way, 
but as of right now, Purdue's a better football job for Jeff. And he, I think he recognized that, even though he had some you know family ties down there and he had to make a really tough decision. You know, Purdue has made the commitment to football uh, over the last couple of years since they had a change in athletic directors. You have more support from the board of trustees, more support from the president, recognizing that you have to make these investments in order to get your football program up to a level where it can compete in the Big Ten West every year. And you've got to, you, you just have to invest. And they've done that. They've invested in Jeff Prom. They're re- coming up. They're going to make a, a huge investment in Ross A Stadium to renovate it. So uh, there's been a complete change in the way that the university supports athletics uh, than maybe five years ago. And that that has shown through the fan base. They have answered with, you know, decent season ticket sales numbers. So uh, everyone understands the importance of having a football program that can be high profile and what it means to the rest of the university. Who are we've we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but who are the 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 young guys, the freshmen? Who are who are these recruits? The top twenty five ranking, everything else. Who who do we get excited about? Like Rondale Mill or Rondale Morris, the obvious guy of like the older group and just Heisman Cannon, all that kind of stuff. But like, who is on the horizon? Who are the young guys that Jeff Brom is picking up that we should keep an eye on and uh, not be surprised when they're doing crazy stuff on Saturdays for Purdue in the coming years. Well, you know, first of all, Rondell will be a sophomore, so he, anything yeah. he does, anything he does, should not surprise anybody. Is he redshirt or true sophomore? He'll he'll true sophomore. He played as okay. a true freshman with the shit. But you know, if you're if you're talking about the true freshmen that are coming in, that are probably going to see playing time, you start at the wide receiver position with David Bell. He's a kid from Indianapolis, Warren Central. He was a big time recruit, but elected to stay close to home. Uh, developed a good relationship with Jeff Brom and the coaching staff. Uh, big, big outside type of receiver, a guy that can stretch the field, and he, he's gonna he's gonna play. Another receiver is Milton Wright. He's from Louisville. Another big kid, about six three. I look for him to play as well. Um, and then, you, then uh, from a, from the uh, young kid standpoint, you go over to the defensive side. Uh, defensive end George Karloftis, who's from West Lafayette. Uh, went to West Lafayette High School, grew up right across the street from Purdue. Michigan really wanted him, but uh, George George stayed uh, home. He was with the first-team defense in spring. He'll be with the first-team defense when they start training camp. He's a guy that can really get after it. He's still kind of raw football-wise. He hasn't played the sport for a long time, but he's extremely athletic. And if he can win some one-on-one matchups against some tackles, another offensive lineman and get some pressure on the quarterback, you know, that that's really going to help the, that defensive line. You've got a safety, uh, Jalen Graham, who came in early, uh, enrolled in second semester. He's probably going to be their nickelback to start things off. Hard-hitting type of guy uh, who's going to add a lot in run support. Um, and then you, you've got a handful of other freshmen, you know, Marvin Graham, another safety, who uh, is probably more physical, more physical player than Jalen Graham, uh, will get an early look in camp. And I think what they're going to do with a lot of these guys, uh, a lot of these freshmen, is move them up to the front of the line early in camp, see what they can do, and then figure it out from there. But I I would expect to see uh, at least a handful of true freshmen on the field for Purdue throughout this season. Where is the defense at? Do you think they're going to be better than they were a year ago? Yes. um, I I think they'll move closer to uh, the way they played in 2017 compared to last year. Last year they just had so many – guys that hadn't done it 
And if you remember the first game against Northwestern, the missed tackles, yeah. um, and a lot of just a lot of bad ugly game. Yeah, really ugly game from a defensive standpoint. And they, they, they eventually got that straightened out. But all those guys that played now, they understand um, uh, kind of what, what what's expected from them. Now, they're only going to have four seniors on defense. Um, but they did get a graduate transfer at linebacker, Ben Holt, who's the son of the defensive coordinator, Nick Holt. Um, he made a lot of plays at Western Kentucky last year. I think he ended up with 40 more tackles than the next guy on the team. Uh, so he, he has a knack for being around the ball. And plus, he knows daddy's defense pretty well. So that's going to that's gonna help a lot. Yeah. Um, and I just think they're going to be better up front. They have more options to go to up front. Now, when you get past a guy like Lorenzo Neal, who, who is the leader of the defensive line, uh, he is coming off a knee injury, uh, suffered in the Indiana game. So his time is going to be limited in camp. And I, you know, I think he'll be ready to go by the opener uh, when they play at Nevada. But when you get past Lorenzo up front, you're just dealing with kind of guys. You know, no one's really a standout. And they, they do have some more depth to rotate in there. And if those guys can just play at a decent level, um, then I think they'll be okay up front. But things do start up front, and they've got to get more pressure on the quarterback and more pressure in the backfield to, to allow those linebackers to come in and clean up and, and make the plays. What makes Rondell Moore great? What makes him a superstar Heisman candidate? What do you see? He's just so strong. I mean, really, I mean, he's fast. He can catch the ball. He's got great hands. But his strength is the thing that probably doesn't get talked about enough. Um, if you if, if you remember the Ohio State game and the touchdown he scored, mm-hmm. where I, I, I don't know how many defenders had a hand on him <laughs> during that play that could they mm-hmm. couldn't now. You have the combination of his strength. There's a guy that can squat 600 pounds, which he weighs 100. Can he really? Yeah, he did it. Did it last summer. He squat. He squatted 600 pounds. Now this kid weighs. At the time, he squatted 600 pounds. He weighed 175. So he's doing that. However many times his weight. It's one thing for a 300 pound guy to squat 600. Another thing for a 175 pound guy to squat 600. And he's just so strong. And then when you mix that with his speed um, and his desire to be the best, and the kid is always working so much that he he was working so much last year in practice that they had to scale him back because everybody wears those um, GPS things uh, that they, that they have to track their speed and their movement throughout practice. And he was just putting up on, he, he was putting up on godly numbers when they would go back and look at the data is because he was going through all the reps. He would do first team reps and then sneak into the line and do second team reps and then sneak back into the line to do 13 reps. So he's just a workhorse. Yeah. They finally had to pull him back and just say, Hey, listen, you need to cut back on your, on your reps here, but he's a hungry guy. He wants to excel. He wants to win. And, um, you know, he's, he is produced, you know, he's the face of produced program right now. And he may not catch 100 balls this year, but that's because they got other weapons on the field. But he's going to get a lot of targets. Uh, he's going to, you know, he's going to be the main guy in the offense. He's going to be the main guy defenses have to account for. And if they double team him, I think Purdue's got some answers this year they didn't have last season. 
Last two questions. Um, quarterback. It's kind of uncertain right now. What do you, what do you see? What do you think is going to happen there? Well, it's not really uncertain. It's Elijah Sindelar. He's going to be the Well, I mean, it's uncertain that we just, he's not David Blau. Like, we just don't know. What, what no, do you, like, I, there's enough of a sample size of him to know. Okay. Um, he's a big kid, big arm. Uh, he's a pocket guy. He's not, he's not David Blau from a mobile standpoint. Um, and, you know, and they are, they're different quarterbacks, obviously, from a physical standpoint, but they're also different quarterbacks from a mental standpoint. Um, you both live and breathe the game, but David lived and breathed the game at a, at a high, at an extremely high level that I, I'm not sure I've seen in a long, long time. But Elijah has the physical tools to be a, a big-time quarterback. And it's a matter if they can protect him with the offensive line. Uh, and if they can get some running game out of it, but he, he's going to be the starter. He's going to, uh, you know, here's a kid that played the last three and a half games of the 2017 season on a torn ACL and maybe had 12 touchdowns and one interception during that stretch. And he had four touchdowns in the, uh, in the uh, bowl game uh, when they beat Arizona. So he, he's proven he can play, but now he has to stay healthy and be more consistent in all those things. He, he probably needs a few more games of experience um, because he's been in and out of games, uh, sharing time with David Blau. But, if, if, again, if they can protect him and he can have some time in the pocket to let, to, let these receivers get open, I think that he could have a, he could have a big year. He also graduated with an electrical engineering degree. Seems like a smart dude. And he's also gigantic. Like, this dude is huge. He's big, yes, he's smart, and he has a sixth year in his pocket if he wants it. There you he's go. Already been grant, he's already been granted an extra year uh, by the NCAA. The, the goal is for him to have a, a great year and then move on. But if something would happen where he, if he would get hurt or um, he doesn't have the, the kind of year that would improve his draft stock, then you know he'll have an opportunity to come back. But he is a smart guy. Yeah, he does an in, he's been doing an internship with like the power plant on mm. campus the last okay. few summer. So yeah, sometimes sometimes quarterbacks are too smart. If you know yeah. what I mean, they Kirk Cousins types. Yeah, you just you overthink it too much that you get they don't make, they don't do risky moves. They just they they're captain check down Sam Bradford guys like that where they they really are just too smart and it just it's hard for them to just be like no I, I have to go full brett Favre here and just take a risk and see what happens yeah um last thing and then we'll wrap up here um the schedule you looked at it what do you think what, what is the realistic record outcome for this team this year well i get this question a lot and i always tell people and it, it, this will be the first time that you've heard it so mm-hmm You'll just have to deal with it. <laughs> okay. It's hard for, hard for me to predict a record for Purdue until I see how the offensive line performs. Uh, okay. They have three new starters. They're going to be all first-time guys. They're all up the middle. They'll have a new center and two guards, two new guards. Uh, and we don't know who those people will be yet. And if they, all, if, if they can get those three positions straightened out because they have both tackles back, if – if there's not a drop off from the offensive line from the last two years, you know, I think this team has a chance to win seven or eight games. If there's a drop off on the offensive line and they can't protect the quarterback and they're having some trouble there, 
then they're going to struggle to win six. Um, they have, a, they do have a difficult schedule. You know, when you open on the road at Nevada, uh, you got to remember this contract was signed eight years ago, maybe. Uh, so it's just what it is. So you've got to go on the road in a, you know, three time, you know, three time zones away and open the season. And then you come home and place Vanderbilt and TCU. TCU is going to bring a defense that's going to be nasty. Um, so if you can get out of the first three games, two and one, then you start Big Ten season, and you're playing the Big Ten West. And the other part of it too is there. I think there, when you look at the marquee teams in the Big Ten West, you know Purdue has to go to Wisconsin, they have to go to Iowa, and they have to go to Northwestern. Uh, those are three teams that are going to be in contention. They do get Nebraska and Minnesota at home, but uh, and the crossover games are not daunting because they, they do go to Penn State, but they get Maryland at home, and then they always they always play Indiana. So the schedule has some challenges to it. And and you, you, you have an extremely young team uh, with that. You know, if they start 0-3 this year, like they started 0-3 last year, I, I think they might be in a little bit more trouble than what they, what they were last year because I think the schedule is really – you know, it, it, it's going to be tough for them to, to overcome something like that. But if they can get off to a fast start, I think they'll build some confidence. And, uh, you know, they could they could stay in contention for the Big Ten West longer than they did last year. And then, you know, maybe maybe you can get to seven wins, eight wins, if, if things break your way. All right. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time tonight, man. This is... Uh... Um, this is good. I think they're going to be an interesting team to see. Uh, Big Ten, we'll have to see how this all unfolds. But um, either way, Mike, I appreciate you making the time. Is there anything that uh, you'd like to plug before you get out of here? Um, yeah, why are you so interested in Purdue? So um, I think my favorite college like thing is just like I, I have a unhealthy obsession with Hawaii um, grew up really obsessed with like Fresno State and their run with Tedford. Uh, I mean, not Tedford. Um, that's their current coach, uh, Hill, and just those group with David Carr and all those guys. And then um, I just I've always liked the underdog. I mean, the Boise State play against Oklahoma. Like, there's just something about underdog college teams that have fun offenses that just come out of nowhere and then beat behemoths like Ohio State last year and everything else. I just I'm intrigued by teams like that. And I want to know if Jeff Brom can keep this sustainable. I want to know if PJ Fleck can keep Minnesota on the right path, because I think they run into a eventual wall of like, okay, cool. This is fun. But like, you still have to deal with Michigan and now Nebraska coming up and uh, Michigan state and Ohio state and Wisconsin and all this other stuff. Like what, when do they hit their barrier where it's like, does Jeff Brom go, Oh, okay. This, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to get by regardless of how good of an offensive mind I am. I just don't have the players. Um, I don't know. I just think teams like that are interesting. I think team building like that is interesting. I think him doing what he did with limited talent is pretty impressive. And I just, I think they're an interesting case study in the Big Ten. So I guess I'm looking at them like an experiment. Um, yeah, I could see that, but I, I, I think that they can uh, they can sustain it. But uh, to go back to what I said, they'll only sustain it if they recruit and develop on the offensive line um, over the course of time. Because Jeff Brown can go get a receiver. Jeff Brown go get a running back. Jeff Brown mm-hmm. get, get the quarterback he wants. But you've got to be able to be strong up front 
on both sides of the ball, but especially on the offensive line to do the things that they want to do offensively. He can scheme around it this year. He can scheme around three new starters, but eventually that does catch up to you because everything you're doing is out on tape. So um, if, if he if they can recruit, and they'll use the grad transfer market to help, to help them in the offensive line department, but if they can maintain um, a, a, a situation of semi-excellence on the offensive line, then I think that Purdue can be a contender in the Big Ten West every year under under Brom and this coaching staff. All right. Well, we'll have to see. Mike, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you making the time, and we'll have to check back in soon. All righty. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Have a great night. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back in another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.